Hello, and welcome to a live episode of Popped Culture on Deprogrammed. Hello to the chat. Thank you guys for waiting for us. Running a little late today. Um, and Mystery Chris had to go pick up Tiger because he always thinks it's time to squeak his toys right when we were going live. So he just, as, as soon as I hit the button, he was like, squeak, 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 squeak. Anyway. I'm going to ruin your podcast. I'm going to. Uh, my name is Carrie Smith. This is my co-host, Mystery Chris. And if it's your first time here, we ask that you please subscribe to the channel. This is still a relatively new channel. We've been around for a few months now. Um, we're almost at 10,000 subscribers, which is amazing. I would love to hit that milestone so we can have a party of some kind. And Chris is going to come up with an idea for that party. Uh, digital stickers. <laughs> No, 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 no. Well, that's it. I'm not very good of ideas, though. That's your only idea? Um, also, I have a couple of announcements. I hope you don't mind if I run through these real fast. Uh, tomorrow, I was have... This is exciting. I was going to be pre-recording this, and we had to reschedule. Um, so now it's going to be live tomorrow. My deprogrammed interview tomorrow is with Alex Stein 99 <laughs> who is the funniest person you'll ever see at a city council meeting. He's going to give me some tips on how to be funnier the next time I speak at the city council. (laughs) (laughs) That's going to be live tomorrow. We have to do it a bit earlier than the usual time um, for him. And we're doing it at three o'clock Texas time. So uh, we'll, we'll be posting about it, announcing it tonight. But if you guys want to join us tomorrow at three o'clock central, one o'clock Pacific, uh, and hang out with Alex Stein 99. We would love it. We, I think it's going to be fun. I think it's going to be one of those kind of live ones that just gets really fun because he's just fun and funny. Um, and then on Friday, there's not going to be a live curfew break on Friday because I'm speaking that day and we're going to be doing some stuff ahead of the panel. Um, but I'm speaking that day. If you're in Austin, it's at the Austin Public Library at six o'clock, and it's a panel called Women Leaving the Left. And it's going to be me and Megan Murphy and Michelle Evans. Um, Kelly J. Keene was supposed to be coming, and they just found out a couple hours ago she's got some kind of family thing that's come up, and so she's not going to be there. Um, but it'll be me, Megan Murphy, Michelle Evans, and Mary Lou Singleton. So if you're in the Texas area, feel free to come out. I heard that they told us today that there's going to be a protest. The library told us a protest scheduled um, from some people who think that we're transphobes, I guess. So uh, if you come and you see protesters, just smile at them and be kind to them and go inside no matter what they say. (laughs) That would be my advice. Anyway, (laughs) hand them a flower or a Pepsi. What's that commercial? Hand them a Pepsi. Oh, like uh, what's the Jenner sister? It's a Kay- yes. Kaylee Kylie Jenner. Kylie Jenner, the Pepsi. Are you are you going to come on Friday? I don't know. We'll find out. There'll be lots of ladies there. <laughs> ladies, just yeah, just saying. Um, <laughs> and then the other, what's the other announcement? Oh, Saturday night. At nine o'clock, I'm going to be on uh, Josiah Rises, an Epic Mike show. And uh, then next week, there's a lot of events in June. Next week, if you're in the Dallas area, I'm going to be in Dallas for Fan Expo. My friend has a booth there. Um, my husband and I are going 
to Dallas for the Nerdrotic meetup on Thursday, the 16th, which is totally free. They have all the infos at Nerdrotic site, and uh, there's going to be a ton of people there just hanging out, having conversations, having fun. So if you guys are in Dallas for Fan Expo or if you live nearby, um, come out and see us on Thursday, the 16th. And then last, last announcement, June 25th, which is a Saturday, I'm going to be in New York for the Minds Fest, um, which is, there's a bunch of cool people I'm looking forward to, to seeing speak, including Cornell West. They have Cornell West and, um, he's one of the, those people who is on the left who I still greatly admire. And that made some people mad at me online to say that, but I do, I admire him because I think he, I think he walks his talk. I don't think he's insincere and he's friends with conservatives. One of his best friends is a conservative. He's not a cultist. He may have uh, policies and ideas and opinions that I disagree with, but I think he's of good character. That's, that's just my read on him anyway. And I'm very excited to see him. Um, the other people there are going to be um, Tim Pool, Zuby, Blair White. Uh, it's, all, it's just a whole bunch. Chrissy Mayer is hosting. So that's in New York on June 25th at the Beacon Theater. Okay, that's it. Thanks. Thanks for hanging with me. I got it all done. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> How have you been? I've been good. How are you? I'm good. We we had a date day yesterday and went to the do? went to the creek. Uh we did we did lots of things. We went and hung out with um some of the the locals at the coffee shop that I've been going to and I I just love it. It's like a lot of old timers and they know everything about my little town and they have a lot of interesting insight and opinions into what's going on in the world. And I, anyway, I like going there. So Anthony came with me and then afterwards we, um, uh, one of, one of our new friends came and looked at our old radio to get it fixed. It's a 1937. Oh, you'll appreciate this. It's one of those old tall radios and they put them out in 1937 and they called it the Shirley temple radio because she was in the ads for it. And, and, it doesn't work. So we had this friend come over and he's going to fix it up for us. He repairs radios and pinball machines and stuff. And then what we if it up. only plays like 1930s music? Really That's cool. what I'm hoping. <laughs> <laughs> it's every station. It's just 1930s. Music. Yeah. That's what I'm hoping. Bring back the radio plays. You have a voice <laughs> for radio. You could do, you could do yes, a right. radio play. Huh? I bet Troy's like this. Yeah. The Japanese bomb. today. Yeah, you could do, um, remember they would do those radio dramas and, yeah. and what was the one that everybody thought was real? It was War on the, the radio. Worlds. What was it? I think it was War of the Worlds. Where they, War of the people Worlds. People thought it was like an alien invasion. Yeah. yeah, we need to bring those back, I think. And <laughs> anyway, then we went to the the creek and did some floating. So that was my day. Very nice. Very nice. Well, in preparation of this show, I watched the original Jurassic Park, which I've seen like a billion times. I then decided to watch The Lost World, which I've also seen a billion times, but I, I never watched them back to back. 
And so I decided to do that. And I shouldn't have done that because Lost World is even worse than that. <laughs> 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 it was so boring. It, it's, uh, I mean, we'll get into it when we talk about Jurassic Park sequels, but this it just it wasn't good. But then I decided to listen to the Jurassic Park audiobook because I've read the book like four or five times. And it's actually probably my favorite book of fiction. And so really? I was like, Hi. So yeah, I listened to that audiobook. You can find the audiobook free on like YouTube. And yeah, it was great. Um, you you came up with this topic because you're a big fan of I didn't realize that was like one of your favorite works of fiction. Um, but you're a big fan of Michael Crichton. Am I saying it right? Yeah, Michael Crichton. Yes. Crichton. Uh yeah, since the, the new Jurassic Park. <laughs> there's a squeaky tiger. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, the new Jurassic Park movie comes out this Friday, probably, I don't know, probably tomorrow, Thursday, because they always have those Thursday showings. But uh, that reminded me of Michael Crichton, because I remember years ago reading about uh, an excerpt from his website, which his website's still up. Um, unfortunately, he passed like 2009, I think, but his website's still up. And there's an excerpt from uh, his book, State of Fear, which came out 2004, I think, 2005. And it's fiction, but there are elements of, you know, his views towards you know, climate change and, uh, you know, science being politicized. And so uh, I remember reading this article and thinking how based he was, because in the article from the book, uh, he goes into the history of eugenics. And mm -hmm. he says that he's not comparing eugenics to climate change, but he's saying that this was once a thing that, there was a seemingly a consensus, I'll put that in quote, around, and how this was something that a lot of people didn't question. They just took it as scientific fact. But, you know, once the horrors of what, you know, the World War II Germans did came out, uh, a lot of people kind of backed off of holding those positions, publicly at least. And so uh, he, he goes really into detail about the funding and everything. And uh, like I said, you know, this past couple of years, three years now almost, of dealing with the virus thing, the C virus, not chlamydia, but the other C virus, that, <laughs> but there's that virus, uh, you know, seeing how politicized that was and seeing how it was this unquestionable dogma uh, just kind of reminded me of his stance and the things he said and just maybe really wish he was still alive because mm -hmm. I would be really fascinated to see what he had to say, you know, because I admired his bravery, you know, back then. And I think things have gotten worse for people holding uh, views like his. But uh, it would have been it would have been something to see someone of his stature being able to uh, go toe to toe with a lot of people who are, you know, trying to force things down, you know, our throats. That's, that's what several people said in the comments uh, uh, promoting the show is they were saying, I, you know, I wish... Michael Crichton were alive right now to to talk about what's going on. And I, and I just wanted to respond to one thing you said about how he had to make clear that he wasn't comparing eugenics to climate change. But what he was doing is comparing the the response, the dogma around each of those things. And mm -hmm. that's an important distinction because that's something I saw happening in the past two years when people have compared woke ideology, for example, to Marxist ideology, um, or when they've compared, when people were comparing in the past two years, um, 
some of the hysteria, the reactions to COVID uh, to other events in history, like, like comparing um, the, 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 the things that lead people to embrace authoritarianism. Right. So for example, lockdowns, I heard lots of people saying, how dare you compare lockdowns to Nazi Germany? And it's like, nobody's comparing those two things and saying they're the same. They're not. They're talking about all the stuff around them, the reactions, the things that lead people to accept tyranny. Um, and and I, th I think that's really an important distinction because what they're trying to do when they're saying, you can't compare those two things. It's like, a, I'm not comparing those two things. I'm comparing everything around them. And and B, you're you're trying to prevent conversation. You're trying to prevent learning from history at all. You know, um, when you do that, when you say you can't have those those uh, that kind of analysis, right? Right. Yeah, and that's what you know. Gina Carano got in, you know, mm -hmm. some hot water over her tweet where people are saying, oh, you're trying to say the Holocaust is, you know, just like what's going on today and you're Republicans or oh, you're all victims, aren't you? I'm like, well, that's rich people. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, it's really amazing, you know, what's going on. And it's, it's, it's just, it sucks that we don't have as many high profile voices saying that because he was very clear that, you know, when he was talking about climate change, he, he's not saying that it didn't, you know, didn't exist and that humanity wasn't contributing to it. He was simply saying that it wasn't a catastrophe, mm -hmm. that he didn't believe that it was, you know, uh, end of the world. And, you know, I've read some of the pieces and listened to some interviews in preparation for this, but he goes in a little bit into the funding of it. And maybe I can pull up a link a little later and just read a paragraph from, uh, I think it's also from State of Fear, where he, he talks about, you know, the influence of money and politics on science. And so I saw a lot of what he was saying and things that, you know, I have, I believe and have, you know, believed for a few years now where I, you know, am not an expert on, you know, climate change. So I'm not going to say that it, you know, it, humans aren't causing it or are causing it or whatever. But I will say that I have studied a little bit about the solutions being put forward for towards climate change being, you know, carbon taxes, carbon credits. I've seen how a lot of the people putting these things forward, you know, like Goldman Sachs, you know, Al Gore is, you know, a company that sells carbon credits. I think it's uh, Gore and Blood, you know, David Blood's the name of the other guy, I think. Uh, and so there's literally trillions of dollars at stake mm -hmm. for this, you know, for this all to, to get in place for, you know, individuals, you know, to get even richer for, you know, governments get richer and ultimately some kind of super national government. Cause you know, these elites love their mm -hmm. global governance stuff. But on top of that, there's also the anti-human aspect to environmentalism. And this is something that Crichton touches upon as well how a lot of people believe in the environmental movie. Not everyone, not everyone, but a lot of people believe that humanity is a cancer on the face of the earth and that, you know, a lot of people on the left seem to believe that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so a lot of people, a lot of Malthusians, you know, people who bought into Thomas Malthus view of population growth and that 
Uh, a lot of them in the 1960s, 1970s came out with all these books, people like Paul Ehrlich and John Holdren, who was Obama's first science advisor, uh, warning about some population explosion that was going to happen in the 1980s and 1990s. So they're recommending drastic measures be taken to uh, corral population, you know, putting sterilants in people's water without their knowledge, you know, finding all these other ways to decrease population in the third world. Uh, I actually have Paul Ulrich's book over here. I'm staring at it right now on my bookshelf, The Population Bomb, written in 1968. A lot of these people, once you know the 80s and 90s came about, they were proven wrong that that population bombs, catastrophic you know, uh, population explosion never happened. And so a lot of them you would have thought would have been discredited forever. But <laughs> You would hope. <laughs> yeah, but a lot of them essentially just remade themselves as climate experts. They tone down the rhetoric about population control. It just so happens that the things that they're recommending, you know, these drastic cuts in carbon, you know, emissions and fossil fuels and all these things, without a alternative that is cheap and uh, easily accessible, without that, millions of people over a long period of time will will die. And so, I think, and I don't think it's a conspiracy. I think it's pretty obvious there is an aspect to push this, you know climate catastrophic view of climate change in order to put forward things that they know are going to result in a decrease of the overall population. We need to get um, a sound effect and a flashing light for the screen that says conspiracy theory. <laughs> so when you say stuff like that, <laughs> I, but I hate like having to like preface it by that. And cause I mean, after the last two years, yeah. like you, you really, I mean, come on. Cause I still, I still, I go on various message boards and I go onto a message board for the university I went to and, you know, when people post anything that remotely sounds, you know, conspiratorial, people look, oh, conspiracy theorists. And we're just talking <laughs> like, are you serious? Last two years haven't shown you there is a conspiracy. And it's not like, you know, reptiles, you know, all getting together and, well, they act like reptiles. I don't want to believe that, but no, I'm kidding. Uh, but, you know, these people who are just rich, elite interest who are just conspiring on how to get more wealth and more power. Yeah. I mean, that's something that humanity's always done. And we're just yeah. seeing it on a scale that we haven't seen in our lives, maybe ever, when you're seeing all these governments and uh, all these people leading these institutions that you know are, are going along with this. Some of them might even be like true believers. Some of them you know, might actually think that, you know, what they're doing is good, you know, that, you know, pushing, you know, for some form of global governance is going to result in, you know, the elimination of the possibility for war or three or something. But still, it's, there's still happening. I mean, we're still, you know, there's still a great deal of effort, great deal of money trying to push society in that direction. I do think uh, some of them are sincere. Like they really believe it and that and that probably the younger they are, the more likely it is that they're sincere because they're also kind of, you know, they're younger, they're naive. I mean, people like Greta Thunberg, I think she sincerely believes all the climate change, um, global warming stuff that she says. And part of that is because of her youth and because of the the people in her life, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. I, I felt sorry for her when I saw her like uh there's a video of her singing, I think uh, Rick Ashley's, you know, never going to give you up singing that song. And like, she looks like a, just a teenager having fun. And it's like, it just, because I, I just blame her parents more, just kind of yeah. robbing her childhood and just turning her into this tool 
pushed his propaganda and just not letting her have a normal life. It makes me, it makes me feel sad. Sorry for her. Yeah. I, I, I feel sorry for her too. I do. I think she's um, insufferable, but I also feel sorry for her. <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah. How dare you people say in the chat? How dare you? Um, so, so, well, let's start with some of the fun stuff. Okay. What is it that you love since you just rewatched it and it's one of your favorites? What is it that you love about Jurassic Park? Walk me Dr through why this movie, why the book was so important. Uh, it has dinosaurs in it. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I I love Jurassic Park because it is science fiction, quintessential science fiction, because it's taking a cool concept, this idea that humanity is trying to bring back an extinct species to profit off of it and seeing that get out of control. It, it deals with that age old science fiction question, should mankind be playing God? which the answer from the novel and the movie is no, because when mankind plays God, dinosaurs eat people. This is what Michael <laughs> Crichton was trying to tell us, but no one wants to listen. But I, I love that it elevated that material because if, it, if the novel or the movie had just been a bunch of people who went to an island to get chased around by some dinosaurs, like, uh, maybe that's okay. But having that ethical and philosophical aspect, that debate, and that's question really elevates that material, which is what I love about science fiction in general, because you can enjoy it on two levels, just like Star Trek. You can enjoy Star Trek for the, the lasers and the aliens and school spaceships, but there's also the deeper issues around, you know, mankind and asking, you know, what makes humans human. And so Jurassic Park, I the first one did such an excellent job at that. And unfortunately the sequels became exactly what I was saying earlier about people just running around on islands being chased by monsters because there's nothing left to really explore that question the ethical question was already dealt with and answered and so i just remember being a kid falling in love with jurassic park falling in love with the you know whole culture the impact that it had i remember hearing um chris pratt who's in the new jurassic park tr trilogy uh talking about how jurassic park was the star wars for our generation, for the people who weren't alive when original Star Wars came out, because that movie just kind of revolutionized movie making and blew people away because people had never seen anything like that before. And so when you go to see Jurassic Park for the first time in 1993, you're seeing this realistic animation of dinosaurs on a level we have never seen before. It was groundbreaking. That's what it made such a cultural phenomenon and something that I don't know we can really get back i mean unless we like things go actual 3d not just simulated 3d but if if maybe if if movies and tvs do that there's some kind of breakthrough in that technology maybe that can capture the people's imaginations and and the, the wow factor but you know in a well, culture where we're i was gonna say it, for the first time when you see something like that for the first time it's hard for I think young younger people. Why do I always feel so old on this show? It's hard. <laughs> <laughs> Listen up. Um, but I think it's hard for younger people to imagine what it's like when you see some of this film technology for the first time, mm -hmm. and um, you you kind of can't you can't recreate that. It's like the first time. I, I remember when I was a kid, my mother telling me about the first time she had pizza. When she was a teenager, I thought, "What?" Wow. Like, <laughs> I don't remember that. <laughs> and it, and it was, you know, in in my small southern town, it was 
it was a big deal. She said, we knew this pizza, we were going to get to try pizza. <laughs> What's that like, right? You don't even, I was eating pizza out of the womb. So I don't know, you know, and these kids are seeing special effects like this and even better special effects out of the womb. So they don't know what that's like. And that, and, and that makes me sad too. Cause even as a adult, like I remember watching in the second Avengers movie and at the very end, there's a part of a city that's being levitated. So it's like a floating Island. I just remember being kind of bored there. I just remember thinking like, how spoiled am I? You know, <laughs> just like seeing these like awesome special effects with this realistically rendered uh, a city floating in the sky and all these superheroes battling robots and stuff. And I just remember being like, because eh. it's just like, yeah. where, where can they go? We've seen it all. There's, there's not really much of a wow factor. But I, yeah. I watching Jurassic Park, you know, this this past weekend just kind of brought me back a little bit to to when it came out. And I just remember that that wonder and that that uh, imagination that was evolved that really you know spurred my imagination and that's what i loved about the first movie mm -hmm. did you see it in the theater uh yes i did i saw it in the theater i had the toys i had the video games uh you know because i always liked when i was a kid to i always wanted to kind of own a piece of these big blockbuster movies and so i always had to like buy all the merchandise you know, they, they got me, you know, my parents probably hated them, but you know, <laughs> toy manufacturers and, you know, people making shirts and all these other tie movie tie-ins. But yeah, I, I loved it. It was great. Did you send me some stuff like that? I, I did. did. Uh, the first, I sent you first video is a very short news clip from uh, like some showbiz show on CNN back in 1993. And then, uh, I thought it's an interesting kind of look back. And then there's a couple commercials I want to show. Okay. Should I start with that news clip? Yeah, start with news clip, please. Okay, you guys bear with us because I'm doing the tech tonight. So give me a second. Here we go. Oh, it's encouraging me to buy or rent Jurassic Park. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> okay. Tell me if you can see this. Kids in violence, yet. that's what it's can't called. Can't see anything. Yeah, can't see anything right now. Okay. Can you see it now? Uh, no. Oh, Not. weird. Oh, there it is. Oh, cool. Okay. All right. Okay, let's let's see what this is. Go, go. What'd you say? It starts off going through the weekend box office real quick, and then it gets to the dress part. Okay, here we go. I see it. Dinosaur egg. The dinosaurs are breeding. On Showbiz Today, Jurassic Park takes off like a pterodactyl at the box office. But parents and psychologists say the movie is too scary for young kids. And welcome to Showbiz Today. I'm Lauren Sidney. Jim Moray has the day off. Well, no doubt about it, Jurassic Park is pure dynamite at the box office. Uh -huh. As and Sherry Sylvester reports from Hollywood, the movie opened to the biggest non-holiday weekend business in 65 million years. Better than Batman, said some of the moviegoers leaving the theater. Better than Batman business, say the folks at Universal. Monster-sized crowds devoured nearly every available ticket. 
Jurassic Park opened to an estimated $50 million at the box office. Look, he's zeroing in on the money. It's everywhere you go, it's all you see is dinosaurs, dinosaurs, dinosaurs. A lot of hype, but I wasn't disappointed. It was great. This was way better than Batman. You felt like the dinosaurs were actually standing next to you. <laughs> For this part, the cast and crew kept the film's... What'd you say? The guy's high. <laughs> are you, are you going to be in this video? <laughs> I'm dressed up as a dinosaur in the back. Yeah. Look, a secret before its opening, dinosaur sightings were rare. No visitors were allowed to roam the set. Steven Spielberg, working on another film in Poland, had his viewings of this work in progress scrambled on the satellite so no one would get a sneak preview. It was pretty secretive. They were, uh, they didn't want to show anything to anybody. No, you really had to, I thought, uh, you know, actor, hello, nice to see, but they had a guard there going, uh, mm. Keeping his creatures a secret has kept the surprise in such past Spielberg films as E.T., but many parents were surprised at the amount of violence in Jurassic Park. In spite of its PG-13 rating, many kids under the age of 13 were lining up to see the film. My children really want to see the movie, but in the same token, they... Okay, just given where we are today, <laughs> can you, you imagine this this amount of concern for yes. children watching uh, what is, is PG-13, they said, right? You know, uh, by today's standards, not a very violent or um offensive film i i'm not saying it's wrong that they're concerned about the kids i'm saying things have changed so much i cannot imagine them them if this movie came out today i can't imagine any kind of news piece like this right well can you think yeah any news piece about any movie like when's the last time like there was such a concern about children viewing violent content this i is can't remember I can't either. That's why it's so bizarre. It's such a time capsule, you know, that's showing you're like, wow, people actually kind of cared about viewing habits of children. Yeah. Seen other movies like Godzilla and King Kong movies. So I don't think it'll damage them too much. Spielberg's own kids are too young for the film, as is author Michael Crichton's four-year-old. My sense about this is that um, children under six, it's not, it's really not suitable. And between six and eight, uh, my way of looking at it is to say to parents, has your child seen T2? And if the kid's seen T2, then this is fine. I have um, an 11-year-old and a 9-year-old who are busting to see the film, and I'm very happy for them to see the film. But the kid also has to have a healthy knowledge in that there used to be things called dinosaurs that walked the earth, and uh, none of them were... Look how young he is. Yeah. <laughs> Purple sang songs that were named Barney. But for my age and all the way up to as old as you can be, they're great. Psychiatrist David Levy, who has not seen the film, offers this bit of advice for parents. Talk to other people, other adults whom you respect, whom you trust, who've seen the movie, and weigh their opinion uh, with your decision. Universal estimates that only 2% of the crowd so far has been under the age of 8. For others, the 65 million year wait is over. All that's left to do is count the millions in dino dollars. Sherry Sylvester, CNN Entertainment News, Hollywood. 1993. 1993. Wow, yeah, that's just so interesting to watch that now. I probably need to go back and look at more news pieces from previous decades because that's it's kind of jarring. It is fascinating. It's kind of jarring because I can't, 
I just can't imagine that level of concern these days. These days we have, <laughs> they're doing here in Texas, as I'm sure you saw in Dallas, these uh, drag your kids, what was it? Drag your kids to pride events where they're allowing young children in gay bars. Um, right. Yeah. Supposed, yeah. You're supposed to be I, 21 I, and up. To yeah, be Alex Stein was documenting that. He's going to be on your show tomorrow. Plug. Yeah. He got actually banned, suspended from Twitter. I don't know if it's permanent yet, but he got suspended from Twitter today for calling some of the people outside of that gay bar where he was reporting uh, who attacked him for calling them psychopaths. Uh, he got suspended for that. But but yeah, so we're, we're living in a time where the popular culture is telling us it's acceptable to take small children to... Um, a gay bar when it is you're not allowed to go to a bar if you're under 21 but this seven-year-old why not uh having adults dancing for them and having kids putting dollars in their underwear and then having kids dance under a neon sign that says it's not going to lick itself that's happening and then you look back peek back at 1993 and they're saying i don't know should kids go see jurassic park <laughs> like, <laughs> wow See, that's part of why I've been so nostalgic this past weekend over in Jurassic Park. Like, oh, yeah, Back when people are still somewhat normal. Uh, thank you for the super super pat super chat, JS Pena or Dolly ninety nine. He says Jurassic Park is my favorite film. Is it your favorite film, Mister Chris? Not my favorite film. I I, I like it, uh, but not the, my favorite. Um, what's interesting is that. Uh, Michael Crichton, when he was writing the book, got a bunch of bids. Like he wasn't even done writing the book when a bunch of movie studios wanted to make it turn into a movie. But he was friends with Steven Spielberg, and he was talking about a script for ER. Which remember the show ER? That was created by Michael Crichton. A lot of people don't know that. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and so uh, Steven Spielberg was like, "Yeah, I want to make this movie." So they bought the rights and made it because the book came out in 1990, and then the film came out in '93. And so, yeah. Yeah. I, uh, by the way, I apologize. I heard from Pirate Tomsky right before we started, I saw a message from him that some people thought Michael Crichton was going to be in our show tonight. And I'm sorry, he's not, but oh. also he, he passed away. Like I, we should, <laughs> he, we should have, uh, I should have made that very clear on the artwork that we're just talking about him. He's not, he's not here with us. Here um, in spirit. Here in spirit. One more super chat for 25 bucks. Thank you, Briars and Bantams. Um, whether or not mankind should play God is moot. This is what we do. Flood control, birth control, always striving for longer lives. We constantly try to defy the natural order of things for good or ill. Time will tell. I, I mean, I have thoughts on that. It's interesting. I think um, for good or ill, time will tell. That's certainly the case with some of the rules of nature that we're trying to currently defy um, and to get back to protecting children. I think allowing kids to make permanent decisions about their bodies and to take um, sterilizing hormones and to elect in some cases to get double mastectomies at the age of 13 I think that's that's a kind of defying the laws of nature that is going to bite us in the butt at some point. That's just my opinion. But, I also liked uh, how Jurassic Park made a kind of dual comment. Uh, they made a comment on animals and nature, the nature of nature, and how nature will do what it 
does. It, it tries to survive. But it also made a comment on the nature of man and specifically the greedy aspect mm. of man. Greed is what creates the park. We have John Hammond's obsession with creating this park to make a bunch of money off it. But greed's also what leads to his downfall with Dennis Natchery and the rival corporation that's trying to steal the dinosaur embryos. And so I thought it was a, a again, I love that dual comment on um, both natures, natures of both creatures. Yeah. And and that wasn't in the sequels? Uh, not really. The sequel, so Jurassic World, they go back to, did you see any, any of them or all of them? Or? I did. I think I've probably forgotten them. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't really remember a lot. I do remember the first one making, like you said, an impact on me um, in terms of the, the visual effects and the storyline that you're talking about. You know, the nature of man and the nature of greed. And, and when you're young, those kind of moral lessons can be really powerful without you even realizing it because you're being entertained by the dinosaurs and by the action and the thrill of it. Um, but then you're also kind of learning something about human nature, as you said. Right. Um, so I do have memories of the, watching the first one, but I, I know I watched some of the sequels. I just don't, I don't remember a lot about them. Yeah. The, the second movie, it, it, and a lot of it is just commenting on the same themes. Uh, the corporation that survives in the movie wants to take dinosaurs from the second Island where they are breeding the dinosaurs and, they want to create a new park in America, uh, but you know, uh, Ian Malcolm and his girlfriend, you know, stop that. And then Jurassic Park, th I hate Jurassic Park three so much. I hate that movie. Uh, so <laughs> I'm just getting angry. I just when I think of Jurassic Park, I just or three. I just think of the scene where Alan Grant's dreaming. And he's sitting in an airplane, and a raptor turns to him and goes, "Alan." <laughs> it's like I burst out laughing. <laughs> I was Wait, like, what am I watching? Wait, what happened? Crazy. He's just he's dreaming about something, and and uh, next to him, there's a raptor sitting in the airplane seat next to him, and the, the <laughs> raptor turns to him and says his name. He goes Alan, and this looks ridiculous. <laughs> this is puppet going Alan. <laughs> that was just that. That's even worse. That's it's more ill-conceived than I would say even. Jurassic World. Jurassic World just copied the first Jurassic Park movie, just bit, injected it with steroids, and they just had a uninspired kind of. Yeah, just had a dumb subplot about uh, the military wanting to turn dinosaurs into weapons, which we already have a show about that called Dinosaurs. Yeah, it was in the eighties. It was great. Uh, then in Jurassic Park, uh, was the, I don't even remember what the second one was called. Uh, that one made slightly more sense in terms of the dinosaurs were captured and some of them were being uh, sold, like auctioned off to rich elites as pets. And Chris Pratt and uh, Ron Howard's daughter have to, uh, what's one of them call her? Ron Howard's daughter. I don't know her name. Uh, <laughs> Bryce Dallas. Uh, but uh, yeah, they have to stop it, which they do. And then this third one, the dinosaurs out in the wild. And I guess they have to stop them or something it's just it's there's there's really no place to go with that concept it's such a great concept but it's one that only limits it to really one movie i mean not only the awe of seeing those dinosaurs for the first time uh but 
again, just having to have a convoluted storyline where dinosaurs are contained and dinosaurs get out and chase people. I mean, that's just what it's been just over and over and over again. It's so tiring and they keep having to, they feel like they need to up the ante in terms of having a villain dinosaur. So you went from T-Rex in the first movie to two T-Rexes and a baby T-Rex in the Lost World to Spinosaurus in the third one to Dominus Rex. Uh, so T-Rex with Velociraptor one to the Indoraptor in uh, the second Lost Indoraptor Raptors. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then the third one, I'm, I'm really curious. Are, are they going to do human and dinosaur hybrid? Because originally when they were writing Jurassic Park 4, that was an idea. You can actually find images of this really weird, kind of scary, actually, looking half human, half dinosaur creature. Would have still would have been dumb, but it's like, where else are they gonna take it? You are making me think of something you and I laugh about quite a bit, which is the Key and Peel sketch about was it Gremlins two or three? Gremlins two, yeah. Gremlins two. <laughs> I like Gremlins too. <laughs> yeah, but that sketch is hilarious. Anyone who hasn't seen that, it's uh, it's a it, it, it's it's them uh, imagining what happened in the writers' room for that terrible sequel. Although Mystery Chris liked it, uh, and and they they just up the ante, like you're saying, and they up the ante with these dinosaurs. It was almost as if their idea for Gremlins two was um, let's just make a bunch of crazy hybrid Gremlins, and yes. so. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I wonder if we could get away with playing that sketch. Probably not. Mm, yeah. yeah. Okay. Let's not do it. Uh, by the uh, way, just a minor update for you and for anyone watching. We did get a copyright strike on uh, our last episode of Pop Culture Late Night Losers uh, because of the network clip that was played from the movie Network. And right before we went live, Chris. I got an email from them saying the strike was lifted. And I think that movie, I think that episode is back online. Oh, is it? Yeah. I didn't even appeal it. It I think should did be it because it's hosted, that clip is hosted on like, I counted over a dozen other channels. Yeah. And so. like, we were actually added some commentary where other ones were just posting it. So I'm like, that makes no sense. Yeah. But that's good. G-Man gives us a super chat. Five bucks. Hey, G-Man. Thank you. He says, that's a question for you. How many of these Jurassic World movies are there? They might catch up with the land before time soon. Kidding. Jeez. Which that's the other funny thing about like the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, like how obsessed the culture was with dinosaurs. Because I was thinking about all the cartoons and, uh, around, and shows around dinosaurs. Because you had the land before time movies, which they ended up making like 13 of them. The first one was actually like serious and kind of sad. But then they turned into like musicals and they're all singing about a musical. <laughs> towards earth or something uh but you had that you had the live action dinosaur show the not the mama remember that show yep uh, not the baby Denver, dinosaur yep uh cadillacs and dinosaurs uh dinosaurs uh the land before time or not Land for um uh what was it um land of loss remake mm -hmm. uh yeah you, there was uh <laughs> theodore rex <laughs> <laughs> i think every time like talk about whippy goldberg they need to play a clip from <laughs> like remember this remember yeah. what she did Erase that. <laughs> theodore mm. rex mm. Uh, you know what's there's something uh you're making me think of 
Hollywood goes in trends. If there's something successful, like Jurassic Park was so successful when it came out, then all these studios, all these networks, whether it's TV or film, they're all looking for the next that, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of the people who work on the business side in entertainment are not very creative people, but they do the buying and they do the green lighting. And so the creative people who are going to pitch show ideas and films and stuff, um, they sort of tailor because they know that the, that the buyers are looking for something like Jurassic Park. And so then you see this slew of things that they're trying to capitalize off of the success of that one. And so, as you're saying, there was this slew of dinosaur related films and TV shows and musicals and, um, and, and I'm making this point because that's, that's, in my opinion, that's what's been happening with woke in entertainment. It's not that the people who are making the decisions for programming and, and buying and so it's not that they're all sincere social justice warriors. Some of them might be, but most of them, the majority of them are not. It's just that woke is the current in thing. And then that's what they start looking for is give me that next woke show. And so people start tailoring their material and tailoring what they're pitching to, to what the, what, you know, what's been popular yeah. um, or what they thought was popular. I guess I should put it that way. Hopefully yeah, popular. Yeah. That's it. That's it. Uh, one more uh, super chat and then we can go to one of your other clips if you want the common nerd. Thank you, sir. Not the, the common mama. nerd says not the mama, not the mama. I do. I remember those, those, uh, what were those Muppets or animatronics? Yeah. And I think that show is underrated. That show is actually pretty well written. I have it on the whole series on DVD. Uh, it's pretty good. It was, it was odd because it was a primetime show. And so the the uh, audience of it was a little confused. I guess they were trying to go for a uh, Flintstones type audience. as like something that could appeal to kids and adults. But it, it was, I don't know, it confused a lot of people. And some of the dinosaurs were a little creepy looking. But I still love I, the that's show. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just remember being a little creeped out by the Muppets. That's yeah, just me, but it always reminded me of like Family Matters because, like, the dad got a similar was a big kind of white guy, and then you had the grandma, and then you had the son and the daughter. There, there was no Urkel in dinosaurs, that should have been maybe that could have saved the show. Yeah, <laughs> the dinosaur version of Family Matters. <laughs> so, what else do you have lined up for me? Uh, let's play uh, two uh, clips. Um, they're just real quick commercials from uh, First is a Sega commercial, and I like kind of explaining the culture or showing what the culture was. And I think this commercial highlights uh, a lot of what I've said about the 90s attitude. So, this should be the link that just says Sega. Okay, here we go. Share. I'm grateful every time I don't accidentally shut down the whole stream by mistake when I'm sharing. <laughs> Here we go. Can you see that? Not yet. There we go. Okay. Imagine you wake up in Jurassic Park and you're a raptor. You have sharp teeth and seven inch claws. And since you've been extinct for 65 million years, you'd be in a really bad mood. Oh. 
Doesn't that make you want to play the game, Carrie? <laughs> Not me. I don't think that's marketed to me, though. <laughs> that's what I loved about the 90s commercials because it's like all these commercials targeted towards teenagers and kids had to have that attitude, that extreme attitude. And they had a guy who was like playing the guitar. So they're like the 80s guitar, like that. It was, I just missed that time. Sega, the Sega time. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, and then you've got another one here. Yeah, this is a commercial. I didn't label it, sorry, but it just yeah, it's time. just the right YouTube link. It just says YouTube and then the random okay. letters. You know what? While I'm pulling this up, I'll tell you, you know what ads, old ads I was looking at today? What? <laughs> Do you remember those Diet Coke break ads from the 90s where mm. the women in the office building were all like, it's 1130, it's 1130. Diet Coke break and they all go to the window and then they the sexy music comes on and they watch these construction workers take their shirts off and drink Diet Coke. I don't think I remember that. I'm going to turn women, it off when that happens. Women in <laughs> <laughs> the chat. Women and gay men of the chat. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, I hadn't seen those in a while. They were fun. Okay. What commercial is this? Uh, this is a toy commercial. Okay. It's the Jurassic Park command compound with an electronic computer oh. that says over a hundred commands. I remember this. We need more firepower. The computer help. helps you. Secure. Yeah. Jurassic Park electronic talking command compound figures and dinosaurs sold separately. Batteries not included. I, 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 go ahead. No, you go. <laughs> no, I sis. No, uh, I, this is one of the things I loved about 90s toy commercials. How so often they included things that weren't even in the movie. You know, like for all the Batman ones, like they had like. Batman had a suit for every like ecosystem. So he had like underwater Batman. <laughs> and then like <laughs> moonwalking Batman. <laughs> You're like, wait a minute. That wasn't in the movie or the cartoon. <laughs> There's I kid you not, there was a Superman one uh where Superman had a car. <laughs> yes, you could buy a Superman car. Like he, he wants to take a car, ask Superman. Like, <laughs> okay, Carnival worker Batman. <laughs> <laughs> Sanitation worker, Batman. <laughs> cleaning up Gotham, the bottom up. You have to buy the sanitation truck. <laughs> <laughs> I remember this commercial. I must have seen it a lot since I remember it because I have a pretty bad memory. Um, and it just makes me think, remember how fun like the toy commercials and stuff were back then. I don't watch yeah. a lot of regular TV, so I don't. I don't actually know if there's even still toy commercials like this. Do they do commercials now with children just playing or is it all woke? Like, you know, Jurassic uh, parks uh, fighting systemic racism. <laughs> Patriarchy <laughs> park. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they don't, uh, kids don't really play with toys that much, maybe young kids, but video games have really taken over, you know, playing habits, which is weird to me. But I, I would argue that, you know, well, I don't have any data for this, but I think a significant portion of people buying toys, new toys, are adults. 
I Sorry, so. I Same just thing saw Halloween. Yeah. I just saw a chat go by from Adam World that said custodian Batman. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the other great thing. Like every show, like the Ninja Turtles and Ghostbusters, Batman, like every character, no matter how minor that character was, had an action figure. Like there could literally be a janitor in the background and he'd have like his own action figure. It's it like, sales. Oh. It's all sales. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. A yeah. uh, quick super chat from Chris. Hannah, thank you, Chris. Gives us a uh, 4.99 super chat and says, Gremlins 2 is the exact studio send-up commentary itself. Do you think so? Uh, it's meta. There is some meta commentary in that. Yeah, yeah I could see that. If I if mm. I went back, I should go back and rewatch that one. So <laughs> I guess he's sort of saying it's, ma it's making up, it ma making fun of studios themselves and how they overdo things right yeah yeah thank you chris and then this is not a super chat i just had to star this one to put because i saw it go by alan scott says clifford liked dinos yes he did <laughs> clifford is one of my favorite comedy movies and he did want to go to dino world <laughs> <laughs> oh wait done okay what else did you have pulled up I, I wanted to bring up a couple articles just we're just going to go through these two articles real quick and then we'll get to michael Crichton. but um if you could bring up the new york post it just says new york post article real quick mm -hmm. what's this one about uh this one is about the dodo bird because all of this uh genetic engineering um for the last few years have made me wonder how close are we to actually cloning extinct species uh, I remember reading about a woolly mammoth that was found frozen somewhere and how there's a company that is working on uh, trying to bring back the woolly mammoth. And these people sound like the exact groups of people that Michael Grimes had award is about, like bringing back things that have no idea about how to survive in the current ecosystem. And so uh, the dodo bird is another one. And this one, when I, I just found this out, they successfully ma uh, ma uh, mapped the genome of it. And so they are very close to dodo, uh, <laughs> cloning a dodo bird, which I think somewhere some billionaire already has a bunch of cloned dodo birds that he eats every night. Like Bill Gates or somebody's probably eating dodo birds. But I just thought that was interesting that we might actually see this in, in our lifetime. And how how do you feel? Like, do you, do you think this is something we should? I mean, they're going to do it no matter what. I mean, we don't have any control uh, of it. But like playing God, right? Yeah. My fears about this. Well, first of all, let me read this for anyone who's just listening. Uh, it's an article in the New York Post. It says the headline is "Dodo DNA Discovery Could Lead to Revival of Extinct Bird." And this is from March of this year. I had not heard about this, Chris. No, oh, yeah. It's amazing. Uh, the thought of reviving the foregone dodo is no longer one for the birds. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> I just like it when journalists like make a little funny, like that newscaster that we just saw said, uh, what'd she do? She did a pun. <laughs> and dynamite. She said this, the, right. that the, the ticket sales were dynamite. Okay. The recent discovery of a fantastic specimen of dodo DNA was the last clue needed to complete 
the extinct birds genome announced a team of biological researchers at the University of California, Santa Cruz. The findings mean that scientists are one step closer to the possibility of bringing back the dodo, which disappeared more than three centuries ago. Beth Shapiro, professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at UC Santa Cruz, told viewers of a Royal Society webinar that her group would publish the full genetic sequence at the Natural History Museum of Denmark. Uh, Shapiro confirmed the breakthrough when pressed by her audience, according to The Telegraph, quote, yes, the dodo genome is entirely sequenced because we sequenced it. It's not been published yet, but it does exist, and we're working on it right now. When she says it's not been published yet, does she mean they haven't uh, put in a scientific paper the, the sequence, or does she mean published, meaning we haven't brought a dodo to life yet? <laughs> I think she meant published, I think. Yeah. Okay. So, well... My thought, Walmart ad. My thoughts on this are, it's on the one hand, as someone who feels uh, like anyone who who doesn't like to see species go extinct, right, and, and who cares about our impact on the planet, this initially strikes me as like, oh, cool, we could have this extinct species back. But then, right after that initial feeling, there's that uh, critical view that's sort of, wait a minute what Pandora's box are we opening up here? Um, is this species even, what impact is it going to have on the ecology? Like what, what impact is it going to have on the environment and other species? And, and then beyond that, what impact is it going to have on, on us and on, and what other things we choose to do just because science has, has reached the point that we can do it just because we can right. do something doesn't mean we should do it. And so what is this sort of, um, creating a path for like what would be next that's where my mind goes yeah i'm exactly with you yeah i i think it's cool because i always liked the dodo bird ever since i watched tiny tunes and they had the dodo bird character i've kind of been obsessed with dodo birds so i would love to see it come back but you know my mind like yours asks you know what, what are the ramifications for this what are any unforeseen uh, possibilities like i don't think the dodo is going to be violent and kill a bunch of people although that might be kind of hilarious <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I, I, it's I, I'm got to kind of have that mixed uh, feelings about it. Yeah, because what happens when they are like, okay, and now it's time to bring back the T Rex. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, well, thank you for telling me about that. I hadn't even heard anything about it. Yeah, so yeah, I didn't. Yeah. I didn't know that was going on. Uh, and then I have one other article before we get to Michael Crichton. Um, it's the Laura Dern article. She said something that I'm sure you'll have an opinion on. Oh, I already see the headline. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is she woke? Yeah. Well, she, there's a quote in, quote in the, the article. Yeah, it'll, it'll makes it clear where she's coming from. She, she played Aldo in the new Star Wars uh, movie, or not new, but The Last Jedi. Oh, right. And a lot of people, that was very uh, third-wave feminist-y. She's, um, she's a very great actress. I, I, I think she's an amazing actress. That's why that's disappointing. Look at this mm -hmm. huge ad at the top of this news article. This is an article from IndieWire. Well, it just disappeared. But there was a big ad there that says, be safe. That's all it says. And then it says, be safe in a lot of different languages. 
Okay. We are living in a safety culture. <laughs> <laughs> the only you, safety you get, I like is dance. You become a curmudgeonly old man about about Jurassic Park three. I become a curmudgeon when I see advertisements like that. <laughs> like, <laughs> need to be safe. Okay. <laughs> IndieWire headline: Laura Dern questions whether Jurassic Park age gap romance was quote completely appropriate. And then the the subheadline is Sam Neill started to question their on-screen romance when he saw it featured in a magazine article titled Old Geezers and Gals. <laughs> I kind of want to read that article. <laughs> I kind of want to read that one too. <laughs> Maybe we should pull that one up next. Uh, Laura Dern was 26 years old when Jurassic Park hit theaters in 1993, but she was only 23 when the movie began shooting. Her character, Dr. Ellie Sattler, falls in love with the much older scientist, Dr. Alan Grant, played by Sam Neill. Neill was 43 years old during the shoot, but neither actor was particularly concerned about the 20-year age gap between their characters. But nearly three decades later, as the two stars geared up to reprise their iconic roles in some guy's Jurassic World Dominion, they began to see that romance in a different light. The world has changed a lot since 1993, and what seemed normal at the time now seems strange to them. In a new interview with the Sunday Times, Dern and Neil reflected on their original on-screen romance and questioned whether it was the right choice. Quote, I am 20 years older than Laura, which at the time was a completely appropriate age difference for a leading man and lady, Neil said, before recalling the moment he realized that it might not have been normal. It never occurred to me until I opened a magazine and there was an article called Old Geezers and Gals, people like Harrison Ford and Sean Connery acting with much younger people. And there I was on the list. I thought, come on, it can't be true. Dern echoes the sentiment that being cast as Neil's love interest felt completely normal at the time, and she did not question it until decades later. Quote, well, it felt completely appropriate to fall in love with Sam Neill, Dern said, and it was only now when we returned in a moment of cultural awareness about the patriarchy. <laughs> there we go. I told you it's coming. <laughs> okay, just whenever anybody says something like that with a straight face, like, <laughs> I, like, you're joking and you're being tongue-in-cheek and sarcastic, okay, but... I can't take people seriously. Anymore. And I used to be one of those people who talked about the patriarchy, but now it's just, come on, really? She's, you're saying it like that. <laughs> and it was only now when we returned in a moment of cultural awareness about the patriarchy that I was like, wow, we're not the same age. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? I... Uh, okay. I'm going to stop there. Is, is this a new thing? Like, like age differences where an older man is dating younger women, are they going to say that he's, he's taking advantage of her, even if she's in a, uh, like a grown adult, it's like the new thing. They have to find some new thing to play victim about. It's, it's okay. It's not that they're saying he's taking advantage of her. What they're doing is they actually are calling out something that has been very common in entertainment. And, um, and that's that they would often pair, like he said in this article, they talked about this, but they would often pair much older leading men with with very young leading women. And and this is true. It's it's just it's what they've done. In fact, in fact, a lot of women as they age in Hollywood have talked about the fact that it's 
it's hard to be an aging woman in Hollywood and um, you don't get cast in the, the leading role as often and you don't get paired up with men your age. And um, it's unusual to see uh, it's unusual enough that that you could probably name on on one or two hands the the older leading ladies that we all love to see on the screen, like Angelica Houston or um, Goldie Hawn. I mean, is Goldie Hawn doing anything anymore? Meryl Streep, that's one. Um, but but it's not a lot of them that you can look to, whereas I think anybody off the top of your head, tell me if I'm wrong in the chat, but off the top of your head, you can name a lot of older actors who still get leading roles. That's just always kind of happened. Um, and I think that's a fair cultural criticism. But I will also say this, it's somewhat, it's not entirely, but it's somewhat reflective of what you see off the screen in culture sometimes. Because now this is this is where we're going to tread into territory where I get called a sexist or internally, <laughs> internally misogynistic. Um, when I, th I think it's it, it's I think it's uh, descriptive, not prescriptive. What I'm doing is I'm describing a phenomenon. I'm not saying it should be like this. I'm saying this is how it is. Uh, women in our society do get judged more on our looks, um, our youth our fertility, um, our ability to, to, uh, produce a family. Um, men tend to be valued more for how much wealth they can amass, how much, um, security they can provide in, in, in a home. And I think some of these things are cultural. I think some of this is because of cultural reasons, but I think some of it is also, uh, biological because of biological reasons because if you look at you know historically the ways in which we've we've formed families for the purpose of recreation and protecting our young and you know have these family units and you've got these two differently abled uh partners in a in a in a heterosexual marriage right you've got a man and a woman who are different physiologically that's going to get me called a sexist, but it's true. <laughs> They're different. And so think back to the hunters and gatherers. I mean, the men were out hunting. They were providing in that way. And women were at home taking care of the offspring and, you know, cooking and preparing the home. And that's, that's the, I think some of this is biological is what I'm saying. Yeah. I definitely think a lot of that is biological because I mean, look at Donald Trump. Donald Trump is mid seventies. Melania is what forties, maybe fifty. I don't know, but she's significantly younger than him. And it's just something, as you say, we see in culture a lot. Older men generally have higher status, you know, more wealth. Uh, you know, they're higher up in the hierarchy if they're a part of some organization or something, and that tends to have a appeal. And this is generalities. There's always exceptions. There's always exceptions. Absolutely. I'm always have to make that point because people are like, oh, but I know that blah, blah, blah. It's like I say, like black people are an average taller than, you know, Asian people. It's like, well, I know an Asian guy that's seven foot five. I was like, well, this, that's, that's but, people don't understand how bell curves work. That's why they say, <laughs> but I know an outlier. Yeah, it's, it's an outlier. <laughs> But this is something we see in our culture a lot. And I don't think it's a cultural, uh, social construct that society is telling them. I think this is something that a lot of people respond to. And, you know, young women is something a lot of not only men, but women respond to. Having a young, pretty woman is something that 
a lot of people just like seeing and having a man that has that, uh, what would you call it, that statesman type of attitude or, or, or presence, I think, is something that goes along with a lot of older men that, you know, are achieve things in life. And so I don't think that what they did in Jurassic Park was inappropriate on any level having that age range because, yeah, maybe 20 years is not maybe something we see as much, but there generally there is a large age gap between, you know, men and women in general. There's there's always exceptions, but I remember when I was on dating sites and women, I rarely I would come across a profile when a woman would date a man that was younger than her. Like usually she would go up, you know, 10 years, 17 years. Sometimes they even go up to 20 years. So that's something that was very common. I saw, I didn't check out any dudes profiles, but I'm pretty sure dudes will date women that are significantly younger. As long as they're legal. <laughs> well, some of them will do that, even they're not this legal. Is, but this is descriptive. Yes. I think on average, if you go to any dating site, um, you will see maybe m more women than men will be looking for older partners and more men than women will be looking for younger partners. Um, I'm not saying it should be that way. I'm just saying that I'm describing the way things currently are and have been for a while. And I think I think with any phenomenon like that, you also have people who take it to extremes. We all know that creepy old skeevy guy who just got a divorce and abandoned his family in his 50s or 60s and has started dating 20-year-olds who can't have a conversation with him because they have nothing in common. Like, we all know that guy. <laughs> so there are people who take it to extremes. Um, but... but uh, but yeah, I think I think um, I don't know. I guess I guess I don't have a strong opinion either way. I think I think what she's saying is fair. Yes, this is something that's been happening in Hollywood for a while, where they the the leading ladies have a, a shorter shelf life for being leading ladies than the than the men do, and so you tend to have these lopsided age uh, partnerships on screen. Um, that's true. At the same time, I don't think that's a result of patriarchy, where men. <laughs> are some oppressive group and are doing this to keep women down. There's no, there's no oppressor or oppressed in this phenomenon. You know, women who are young and who marry older men. And in that trade-off, you know, the man brings the security. Um, the man brings the, the wealth, the woman brings her youth and her looks in that trade-off, they're both getting something and it's by choice. You know what I mean? It's like, it's not like, oh, this awful man is oppressing this woman. It's like, but you could just as easily say she's oppressing him and using him for his wealth. Do you know what I mean? Right. I'm yeah. thinking here of, uh, what was that guy who recently got divorced? Scott Adams. You know, a lot of people were talking about his age. I think he's in his 60s and he married this girl in her, was it 20s recently? And then they, it, they were like divorced within a year. And I'm not picking on them. I'm just saying this is one I saw in the news recently. And a lot of people want to say, oh, he's taking advantage of her because of, you know, her youth and her beauty. It's like, but, but also she's taking advantage of him because of his, mm -hmm. the, his wealth and his standing. So but I, I just, I see her, her comment as similar to Scarlett Johansson, where, you know, women who are younger, you know, and are very attractive. They're used to getting a lot of attention. Um, um, they're used to 
you know, getting a lot of things for, for their beauty and compliment it. But some women, not all, not all, but some, as they get older, get a little bit more resentful of mm -hmm. not being as young and attractive as they once were. And then they start to adopt this kind of ultra feminist uh, position. That's what Scarlett Johansson's kind of doing when, you know, she's complaining that, you know, she was being sexed up and, you know, producers just wanted to, to show her assets on, you know, screen and stuff. It's like, but you were willing to be a part of it. You weren't yes. forced to do this. You know, you, you, were... you know what you're doing. You know the attention and the money and everything you got from this. Now that you're approaching 40 or she might even be 40 now, now she's starting to kind of take a more conservative, you know, feminist type of approach or view of these things. And it's just like, it seems very obvious why she's doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right because the 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 value. <laughs> I don't mean value as a human being and your worth and your soul. I'm saying the value in an arrangement in a partnership in the dating world decreases for women a little faster than men. Also, somebody in the chat, two sisters in some yarn, says, "Are you are you guys not going to talk about the fact that men mature later than women?" <laughs> she says, "Yeah, and <laughs> yeah. woken." Woken, she said she means women. Um, and then Adam says Scarlett has been married three times. Is that true? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, yeah. She's um, married to the Samuel I know. Don't ask me how I know that. Scarlett Jost. Yeah. Teresa says Scarlett cashed all the checks. Yeah, this is sort of what you're saying. It's 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 like in some of the Me Too stuff that we've seen. Um, just because someone is a predator and they take advantage of their power or their resources to coerce you into something, that doesn't mean that you don't still have a choice of whether or not you're going to be co coerced. Sometimes you have a choice. And, and if you, if you choose to allow yourself to be used in that way, because of whatever it is that you're going to get, that's your choice. You're making the deal with the devil. You know, you could yep. walk away from it and say, no, I don't want that film that bad. <laughs> or I don't want that TV show that bad. Because people have agency, and that's something that we've seemed to have forgotten in our society. If you're yeah. a marginalized person, you don't have agency. Well, that's you're just a victim of oppressive groups, i.e., white men. Yeah, that's what they want us to believe. Yeah. <laughs> okay, what else do you have queued up? So that was interesting. Uh, yeah, no problem. Uh, I thought we'd get into Michael Crichton stuff. Okay. We'll do that, and then we'll end on a couple short, funny videos. Okay, but so I'm going to pull up this speech of his that you sent me, and we can read some of it. This is where he's talking about politicizing science. Yes. Um, I'm going to tell you an anecdote while I'm pulling this up. So when I saw Jeff Goldblum on the screen during that first clip <laughs> that we were showing, I yeah. just remembered. So one time when I was living in L.A., uh, I was driving down this back street in West Hollywood, and I wasn't, I was looking at my phone or something that you should not be doing. Don't do this kids. And I, <laughs> I looked up, I almost ran over someone in the crosswalk. I had to slam on my brakes. There was someone crossing and it, and he looked at me and it was Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> you could have killed Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> and time stood still. Cause I, you know, your brain's like, where do I know that person from? <laughs> he was like, <laughs> you say I loved you in Jurassic Park and Independence Day. I loved you in Jurassic Park. Inside <laughs> my car. Yes. Uh, yes, yes, uh, yes. That is right. Uh, yes, yes. Oh, that's a good question. Yeah. yeah. 
go. Okay, this is long. We're not going to read the whole thing, guys. We might take turns reading a little bit of it, though. So this is on Michael Crichton's site. <clears throat> uh, Mystery Crow sent me this. And it's called Why Politicized Science is Dangerous. Um, <clears throat> imagine that there is a new scientific theory that warns of an impending crisis and points to a way out. This theory quickly draws support from leading scientists, politicians, and celebrities around the world. Research is funded by distinguished philanthropies and carried out at prestigious universities. The crisis is reported frequently in the media. The science is taught in college and high school classrooms. Let's just pause there. <clears throat> Does this sound familiar? <laughs> All too familiar. Multiple things, in fact. Multiple things about this sound very familiar. Okay, so he continues. I don't mean global warming. I'm talking about another theory, which rose to prominence a century ago. Its supporters included Theodore Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, and Winston Churchill. It was approved by Supreme Court Justices Oliver Wendell Holmes and Louis Brandeis, who ruled in its favor. I may have pronounced that name wrong. Apologies. The famous names who supported it included Alexander Graham Bell, inventor of the telephone, activist Margaret Sanger, that's the Planned Parenthood lady, uh, botanist Luther Burbank, Leland Stanford, founder of Stanford University, the novelist H.G. Wells. Hey, Lord of the Worlds, right? Mm -hmm. The playwright George Bernard Shaw and hundreds of others. Nobel Prize winners gave support. Research was backed by the Carnegie and Rockefeller Foundations. The Cold Springs Harbor Institute was built to carry out this research, but important work was also done at Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Stanford, and Johns Hopkins. Johns Hopkins. Legislation to address the crisis was passed in states from New York to California. These efforts had the support of the National Academy of Sciences, the American Medical Association, and the National Research Council. It was said that if Jesus were alive, he would have supported this effort. All in all, the research... Wait, wait, let's pause there for one more second. It was said that if Jesus were alive, he would have supported this effort. Does that sound familiar? Yes, because they yeah. say Jesus was a socialist. Yeah, and also the past two years in particular, I've heard a lot of arguments saying Jesus would want you to get the vax. Jesus would want you to wear the mask. Jesus would want us to lock down. I've heard a lot of crap like that. Jesus would want your kid to go to a gay bar and put dollar bills in the G-strings. <laughs> yes, trend. yes, yes, yeah. That's, by the way, that's what I think. That's taking the Lord's name in vain. That's what that means. You're putting mm. God's name on something that is not of God. But that's just my opinion. Um, all in all, the research, legislation, and molding of public opinion surrounding the theory went on for almost half a century those who opposed this theory were shouted down and called reactionary, blind to reality, or just plain ignorant. But in hindsight, what is surprising is that so few people objected. I'm basically going to pause after every paragraph and ask you if this sounds familiar. <laughs> <laughs> Need a little bell. Ding, ding, yeah. Ding. Today, we know that this famous theory that gained so much support was actually pseudoscience. The crisis it claimed was non-existent, and the actions taken in the name of theory were morally and criminally wrong. Morally and criminally wrong. Ultimately, they led to the deaths of millions of people. The theory was eugenics, and its history is so dreadful 
and to those who were caught up in it so embarrassing that it is now rarely discussed. But it is a story that should be well known to every citizen so that its horrors are not repeated. The theory of eugenics postulated a crisis of the gene pool leading to the deterioration of the human race. The best human beings were not breeding as rapidly as the inferior ones, the foreigners, the immigrants, the Jews, the degenerates, the unfit, and the, quote, feeble-minded. Francis Galton, a respected British scientist, first speculated about this area, but his ideas were taken far beyond anything he intended. They were adopted by science-minded Americans, as well as those who had no interest in science, but who were worried about the immigration of inferior races early, earlier, early in the 20th century. Quote, dangerous human pests, end quote, who represented the rising tide of imbeciles and who were polluting the best of the human race. So it goes on about how racist uh, and xenophobic this uh, this theory was. Uh, there's a I'm going to highlight this quote here from Margaret Sanger, founder of Planned Parenthood. As Margaret Sanger said, quote, fostering the good for nothing at the expense of the good is an extreme cruelty. There is not greater curse to posterity than that of bequeathing them an increasing population of imbeciles. She also spoke of the burden of caring for, quote, this dead weight of human waste. She was a really racist woman, if people don't know that. Um, and then it goes on to talk about some of the famous people who shared views like this, who bought into this theory, who pushed it um, about the overt racism and... What's the next part that you have highlighted? I'm looking for the one that I wanted to read. Um, let's see. I went. Highlighted <laughs> a lot. Uh, let's see. So, oh, uh, this what said. California was one of 29 American states to pass laws allowing sterilization, but it proved the most forward-looking and enthusiastic. More sterilizations were carried out in California than anywhere else in America, and this is something that uh, German guy Adolf H. Uh, looked up to because he he did keep track of what was going on in California and they liked what they were doing and and because they were going primarily after uh, quote unquote feeble minded people who are mentally handicapped and black people and sterilizing them without their knowledge uh, yeah mm. so um, and then uh, said the eugenics research was funded by the Carnegie Foundation and later by the Rockefeller Foundation. The latter was so enthusiastic that even after the center of eugenics effort moved to Germany and evolved the gassing of individuals from mental institutions, the Rockefeller Foundation continued to finance German researchers at a very high level. The foundation was quiet about it, but they were still funding research in 1939, only months before the onset of World War II. And then skips down a little bit um after world war ii nobody was a eugenist and nobody had ever been a eugenist biographers of celebrated and powerful did not dwell on the attractions of the this philosophy to their subjects and sometimes did not mention it at all eugenics ceased to be a subject for college classrooms although some argue that its ideas continue to have currency in this disguised form hmm. what do you think about like I could see that, particularly after the virus stuff, how a lot of people are going to kind of like, oh, well, you know, I was never, you know, saying we got to like lock out oh, everyone. Yeah. Absolutely. No, no. Absolutely. I'm already seeing that. That's what they're going to yeah. say. Or they're going to, yeah. or they're going to lump all of us in, including all of us who dissented and did not go along with the lockdowns or the mask mandates or however we chose to dissent. They're going to mm -hmm. lump us all in with them and say, well, how could we have known? We all believed this. We all did. It's like, no, 
it might have been a minority of us, but there were those of us who were saying from the beginning, why are we rushing headlong into this, into these authoritarian measures? Why are we stripping away individual rights for this? It, doesn't it affect, you know, mostly these age groups and mostly people with comorbidities? And we weren't allowed to say any of that. And now, of course, even Bill Gates is saying like, oh, well, it turns out. <laughs> Were you the one who told me that? He said that recently. Maybe it was I Anthony. Else, yeah. Yeah, he I mean, yeah, he basically said what we what everyone who was called um, a grandma killer and a skeptic were, were saying from the beginning, which is you know, the kids aren't really at, at risk. <laughs> you know, like the things that we were not allowed to say, the things that people got banned for saying, but they're going to lump us all in with them and say, well, that's what we didn't know. And we all believe this. No, we didn't all believe it. And we mm -hmm. weren't allowed to question it. And we weren't allowed to say, where did this really come from? We were called conspiracy theorists for saying, hey, maybe the, the, you know, there's a lab in Wuhan that studies this very thing. Maybe we should figure out if it came from there. Crazy conspiracy theory, <laughs> you know? And now they're like, yeah, it looks like it probably came from there. Um, no apology for banning doctors and scientists and people who said that. You know, because none of us knew. We couldn't have known. We were all in the dark. I have family members that still have that position. And I keep trying to tell them that, first of all, there was data back then, even some from the CDC that they love so much. But there is also the fact that you could see that there was contradictions in what we were being told. Because certainly mm -hmm. by May 2020, we knew that this wasn't as serious as what they were saying, that it was political because they went from saying that we all had to be locked down and wear masks and all this, because you know, if you're selfish, like those people in Michigan who went to the Capitol, you know, you're you're trying to kill grandma. But then literally like three weeks later, George Floyd dies and they're telling us we all gotta go out and march because yes. racism virus facing America. And it was like, wait, you're you're saying I still have to lock it um, but like, and I have so many people in my life that are able to rationalize this contradiction. And I just, it, it, it freaks me out quite honestly. There's, um, <laughs> there's something happening with your microphone. It's like a popping sound. Does everybody else hear that? Is it just me? Hmm. Mute yourself for a second. If you can, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, it's your microphone. I don't know if everybody else can hear it or just me. Sounds like there's a fuzzy connection happening. Oh, I have to check that out. Yeah, sorry about that. Uh, yeah, everybody's. Yeah, Alan says I hear it. Hmm. Maybe blow on it. Sounding a lot like a good. Oh, it's not. Put some aluminum foil on it and bend it back and forth. <laughs> <laughs> uh do you want to try leaving and coming back oh okay yeah it's really I, unfortunately i don't think we can continue or at least you can't talk with it like that okay i'll be, I'll be back okay you come back i'm gonna read more of this sorry guys somebody says speaking of the fly lol um thank you for the super chats i am going to get to them I'm going to wait so so Chris can hear them too, and then and then I'll read them. Um, I did want to read this part of the piece. 
so this i think is just uh, this gives me chills because it reminds me of so much that's going on now um so it says second the eugenics movement was really a social program masquerading as a scientific one a social program masquerading as a scientific one what drove it was concern about immigration and racism and undesirable people moving into one's neighborhood or country once again vague terminology helped conceal what was really going on and, and earlier in this piece, he was talking about the vague terminology, how they would use these these vague phrases to indict anyone who didn't go along with it. And that made me think of the way they they just vaguely will, will call anybody anti-vax. They, they put that word on people like myself who've taken numerous vaccines. They were calling me anti-vax all of a sudden. It's like these are just vague insults um, to, to keep people in line. I think I think Chris is back. Let's see. There you are. Hello. Hello is that any better? That's better. Yay. Yay. Good job. So I was just reading a couple more pieces of this. I read the part about how it said eugenics was really a social program masquerading as a scientific program. Yeah. And how they used vague terminology to conceal what was really going on. Um, okay. So then it says third and most distressing. The scientific establishment in both the United States and Germany did not mount any sustained protests. The scientific establishment didn't mount protests. <clears throat> okay. Mm. Quite the contrary. In Germany, scientists quickly fell into line with the program. Modern German researchers have gone back to review Nazi documents from the 1930s. They expected to find directives telling scientists what research should be done, but none were necessary. Does that sound familiar? People, <laughs> social control. They just fall in line. It's like they don't even have to get their marching orders because most of them will just go with the flow with where the culture and society is going, right? So it says uh, none, none of that was, was necessary. In the words of Ute Dijkman, quote, scientists, including those who were not members of the Nazi party, helped to get funding for their work through their modified behavior and direct cooperation with the state their direct cooperation today. Dykeman speaks of the quote, active role of scientists themselves in regard to Nazi race policy, where research was aimed at confirming the racial doctrine. So, so that's not science when you're doing research to confirm a, a belief that you already hold. That's not science. That's, that's you starting with the result and working backwards to try and make it real. Like that is, that is dishonest. just like a uh, critical race theory. Eh? So, yes, white supremacy like is everywhere now we have to find out how it's manifested not if it's yeah. manifest let's start with the conclusion and go backwards that's like when they say stuff about um how there are more uh mothers i think i think it is uh maternal death rates during labor are higher among black women than white women okay now a scientist would start with the question why is that Let's look at a lot of different things in there and, and weed things out and let's figure out what the answer is. No, what the modern social scientists do and what the politicians do, I've heard them say this. They say, I think Kamala Harris said this. She did. She's, she's one of the ones who said this, that, that systemic racism is the reason. They yeah. start start with the conclusion. That's not how science works. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they were. Also, do you remember during uh, the virus, C virus? I think it was Cory Booker or someone was saying. I'm sure lots of people were saying the same thing, but uh, I remember him saying that you know uh, COVID was disproportionately affecting 
blacks and whites and that this was like a sign of white supremacy somehow yeah. or that i'm like um you know blacks disproportionately suffer from heart disease and diabetes uh do you think eating habits and you know not working out that might have any effect on people getting this virus and not being able to fight it off I'm going to go with systemic racism. <laughs> it's so easy when every answer is a systemic racism. <laughs> Why are all these black men killing each other in South Side of Chicago? Systemic racism. Alex, show me systemic racism. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, I'm going to finish this part. Um, so it says... Uh, the active role of scientists themselves in regard to Nazi race policy, where the research was aimed at confirming the racial doctrine, no external pressure can be documented. So they weren't even being pressured to do this. They just fall in line through social control. Uh, German scientists adjusted their research interest to the new policies, and those few who did not adjust disappeared. <laughs> Does that sound familiar? How many people have have disappeared? Okay, first of all, how many people in that Wuhan lab actually disappeared? Mm -hmm. Look into that. Uh, and then how many, how many scientists and doctors who didn't agree with the, the COVID measures disappeared from social media? It was a lot. Yep. Yep. <laughs> they were unpersoned. Um, and then there's this one last part. Uh, a second example of politicized science is quite different in character, but it exemplifies the hazard of government ideology controlling the work of science and of uncritical media promoting false concepts. Does everybody remember the MSNBC clip where they said, we should find this one, but they said, if you get the vaccine, it's impossible for you to get a COVID. <laughs> now Joe Biden said that. He probably said it too. No, they he definitely did it. multiple times, emphatically saying it. I tried to bring this up to family members, but again, doesn't matter. Yeah, uh, uh, Rachel Maddow said it. They all said it. They they said these things that were lies, and then later, when it turned out not to be true, they were like, "But how could we have known? We all believed that. No, <laughs> yeah. we didn't all it's believe that. Changes, That's not how science works. Science doesn't say we've got this new vax, and if you if you, let's start with the conclusion that you can't get the virus if you have that let's start there and work backwards that's not what science does and that's what the media was doing and that's what the politicians were doing and it's funny because this essay is kind of old now but it's so current in what it's yep. talking about that it's 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 given me a lot of uh righteous anger <laughs> <laughs> yeah gonna go kill some yeah. dinos after this yeah i think i'm done ranting what about you, you, you <laughs> what else do you have highlighted on there uh let's see um trying to i don't think you got down this far uh, in case you actually did read this just let me know um but the very end um he says now we are engaged in a great new theory that once again has drawn support of politicians scientists and celebrities around the world once again this theory is promoted by major foundations once again it's carried out at prestigious universities once again legislation is passed and social programs are urged in its name once again, critics are few and harshly dealt with. Once again, these measures are being urged have uh, little bi bi basis in fact or science. Once again, groups with other agendas are 
movement that appears high-minded. Once again, claims of moral superiority are used to justify extreme actions. Once again, the fact that some people are hurt is shrugged off because an abstract cause is said to be greater than any human consequences. Once again, vague terms like sustainability and generational justice, terms that have no agreed definition, are employed in the service of a new crisis. I'm not arguing that global warming is the same as eugenics, but the similarities are not superficial. And I do not claim that open and frank discussion of the data and of the issues is being suppressed. Leading scientific journals have taken strong editorial positions on the side of global warming, which I argue they have no business of doing. Under these circumstances, any scientist who has doubts understands clearly that they will be wise to mute their expression. Mm -hmm. One proof of this suppression is the fact that so many of the outspoken critics of global warming are retired professors. These individuals are no longer seeking grants and no longer have to face colleagues whose grant applications and career advancements may be jeopardized by their criticisms. And this highlights something that I mentioned earlier, how people don't acknowledge how much money these grants coming from certain foundations and from the government has an influence on the science. Like when we're treating them like they're infallible, like scientists can't be corrupted. Any person can be corrupted. Mm -hmm. We're all human. We all have these flaws. So putting scientists above that is ridiculous, but they've turned them into these almost saints kind of where they're infallible. And they're, they're immune to financial or political pressures or even immune to just making mistakes. But here we are. Only the right scientists, though. They disappear, the ones that they don't want you to listen to. <laughs> and you're right. That's a great point. You know, he's saying, well, look, the ones who have doubts, the ones who are not afraid to be outspoken critics are mostly retired. They don't have to worry about having their money, their grants taken away from them. Mm -hmm. That alone tells you there's a, there's a problem there with censorship. Uh, and if I could just, I want a couple more paragraphs from a, a different document. You don't have to pull it up because mm -hmm. I'm just going to read these real quick. Um, so let's see. Uh, he goes uh, on this other document that he was giving a, a speech about uh, same topic. Uh, he says, I want to pause here and talk about the notion of consensus and the rise of what has been called consensus science. I regard consensus science as an extremely uh, pernicious development that ought to be stopped cold in its tracks. Historically, the claim consensus has been the first refuge of scoundrels. It is a way to avoid debate by claiming that the matter is already settled. Whether you hear the here the consensus of scientists agrees on something or other, reach for your wallet because you're being at... Let's be clear, the work of science has nothing to do with consensus. Consensus is the business of politics. Science, on the contrary, requires only one investigator who happens to be right, which means that he or she has results that are verifiable by reference to the real world. And science consensus is irrelevant. What is relevant is reproducible results. The greatest science in history are great precisely because they broke with consensus. There's no such thing as consensus science. If it's a consensus. It isn't science. If it's a science, it isn't consensus. Period. Oh, that's great. We. I wish he was still here with us. I know. Uh, uh, let's see. Uh, let's see. One I, other. Go ahead. I remember someone saying this during the past two years, during all the hysteria and the accusations and the censorship, and you know the you know people attacking all of all of mainstream culture and 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 some of our friends and family attacking any of us who were critical and who actually believe in science and said hey 
Like for example, uh, I might like to wait a few years and, and, and actually see some longitudinal studies on this new vaccine before I decide, uh, because I, I, I want to see the science, right? Mm -hmm. We were called anti-science. We were called anti-science and they were using this whole thing about consensus because they had conveniently censored and, and deplatformed all the scientists who didn't agree. Yep. And they were saying consensus, consensus, consensus. And, um, I remember someone saying it might've been Brett Weinstein and I, and I just, it stuck with me. It, it, it was, he used, whoever it was used a phrase that Crichton just used reproducible results. It said science, science doesn't require your faith. It's not a religion. Mm -hmm. It's not a belief system. It's not a way, an ideology, a way of living the world. It's not politics. It doesn't require your faith. It doesn't require your belief. It only requires transparent methodology and reproducible results. That's it. Mm -hmm. So all these people, like with their signs, I believe in science. In this house, we believe in science. I'm like, if you have a sticker that says, I believe in science, that tells me right there. <laughs> you don't know what you're talking about. I believe in science. <laughs> you believe in it? Is it a god to you? Is it some mythical, like, what? What does that mean? <laughs> I believe in science. Uh, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm going to keep reading, actually. <laughs> I lied. I'm going to keep reading. Uh, yeah. So it says, sooner or later, we must form an independent research institute in this country. It must be funded by industry, by government, and by private philanthropy, by individuals and trusts. The money must be pooled so that investigators do not know who is paying them. The Institute must fund more than one team to do research in a particular area, and the verification of results will be a foregone requirement. Teams will know their results will be checked by other groups. In many cases, those who decide how to gather the data will not gather it, and those who gather the data will not analyze it. If we were to address the land temperature with such rigor, we, will, we would be well on our way to understanding of exactly how much faith we can place in global warming and therefore what seriousness we need, we must address this. And then uh, this is, and this paragraph was interesting. Tell me what you think of this. In recent years, much has been said about the postmodernist claims about science to the effect that science is just another form of raw power trickled out in special claims for truth seeking and objectivity that really has no basis in fact. Science, we are told, is no better than any other undertaking. These ideas anger many scientists and they anger me, but recent events have made me wonder if they are correct. We can take as an example the scientific reception uh, accorded to a Danish statistician, Bjorn Lomberg, who wrote a book called The Skeptical Environmentalist. The scientific community responded in a way that can only be described as disgraceful. In professional literature, it was complained he had no standing because he was not an earth scientist. His publisher, Cambridge University Press, was attacked with cries that the editor should be fired and that all right-thinking scientists should shun the press. The past president of AAS wondered how Cambridge could ever publish a book that is so clearly could never have passed peer review. But of course, the manuscript did not pass peer review by three earth scientists on both sides of the Atlantic and all recommended publication. But what are scientists doing attacking a press? Is this the new McCarthyism coming for scientists? 
Worst of all was the behavior of the Scientific American, which seemed intent on proving the postmodernist point that it was all about power, not facts. Scientific America attacked Lomberg for 11 pages, yet only came up with nine factual errors, despite their assertion that the book was rife with careless mistakes. It was a poor display featuring vicious ad hominem attacks, including comparing him to a Holocaust denier. The issue was captioned, science defends itself against the skeptical environmentalists. Really? Scientist has to defend itself? Is that what we've come to? And then he finishes the talk saying, is this what scientists has become? Uh, science has become? I hope not, but it is what it will become unless there is a concerted effort by leading scientists to aggressively separate science from policy. The late Philip Handler, former president of the National Academy of Sciences, said that scientists best serve public policy by living within the ethics of science, not those of politics. If the scientific community, community will not unfork frock these charlatans, the pu public will not discern the difference science and nation will suffer. Personally, I don't worry about the nation, but I do worry about science. He, what a great writer. I know. Yeah. Um, well, you're asking what I think about that. I think the postmodernists, I think the woke, they use prescriptive language a lot. So earlier I was saying, I'm when I was saying I'm using descriptive language, I'm describing things as they are. I'm not saying they should be that way. Okay, I'm not, it's not prescriptive. They use prescriptive language a lot in telling you how things should be. When they, they pretend they're using descriptive and saying how it is, but they're using prescriptive. So when they're coming along and saying at this time or, or what have you and saying, science is not in bias. Science is part of colonialism and the patriarchy. And it's, you know, it's about power. And, and whoever has power gets to decide what science is because there is no objective truth. And whatever we believe it, we believe it because of those who are in power telling us to believe this. Okay, that's kind of what they're saying. Why are they saying that? Because that's the way they want it to be. Mm -hmm. And they want to be the ones in power. And I think that he, they've done a good job. But he said he was worried about the future of science. Well, he should have been. He was right to be worried about it because they've done a good job of turning it into something that is about uh, what he said, a method for true power. Yeah. Not facts. And they've done that. We've seen them do that in the past two years. Yeah. They've pa power, we've seen yeah. them. They Go use ahead. that word science like a cudgel. Beating those of us who actually believe, believe in, who actually um, trust science, beating us over the head with that hammer, you know, mm -hmm. anti-science. It's down is up, up is down. And yeah, they've turned it into somebody in the chat said, you know, trust me, I am the science. It's like Fauci, right? <laughs> <laughs> And, and it's like the the first piece that we read of his, where he said um, this was this was a social thing that was masquerading as a scientific thing. Mm -hmm. Well, we've seen the past two years a political thing and a social thing masquerading as a scientific thing. Yep, it's 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 sad too because if you search, you know, state of fear was what the book from the the first article we read uh, that he wrote was from that book. And if you just search, you know, his name and state of fear, you'll find a bunch of articles that are still attacking him to his day, calling him a client change denier, just ignoring him uh, or, you know, uh, ignoring the points he brought up. Like I, I before this uh, episode, I watched an interview he did with Charlie Rose uh, in 2005, I think. And 
Charlie Rose kept using the consensus argument, the appeal to authority, just saying it's consensus. And he's like, uh, you know, scientists created some report. And it was clear that Charlie Rose didn't read the damn thing, but Michael Crichton did. So Michael Crichton could like answer it like with specific data points and saying, this is not correct. This thing. And Charlie Rose was like, uh, but you know, the, the <laughs> scientists all agree that, you know, so are, are you disagreeing with all these scientists, the consensus? Uh, <laughs> like you're such a tool, Charlie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess I am because the science disagrees with them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I want to read some of these super chats before we end with some funny clips. So this one is relevant to what we're talking about. Thank you, LPJ. Gave us a super chat, 1999, and says Michael Crichton was ostracized from Hollywood for not going along with climate change. He wrote a book called State of Fear. That's the one you've been reading mm -hmm. from, uh, writing about it. He was also my hero a long time ago. Well, yeah. after tonight, I understand why. Yeah. I mean... Yeah, yeah, wouldn't, wouldn't it be cool if like the daily wire just like turned that into a movie state of fear because you know hollywood's never going to turn state of fear in a movie from your mouth to god's ears <laughs> to <the> daily... <laughs> <laughs> or anybody just you know hollywood turn just won't do it we know that um the common nerd dollar nine says my grandparents had an almost 15 year age gap yeah i mean it's it's not that uncommon it, you know uh, again, I think what we see on the big screen is somewhat reflective. Maybe it's exaggerated. It is exaggerated. Somewhat reflective of, of trends that you sometimes see in culture. Tom Cruise always dates women that are younger in the movies. In real life, I assume. But It's when you see a pattern with a dude that it starts to be like, <laughs> hmm. <laughs> right. Um, okay. Chet Swearin again. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great name. Chet Swearin again. Uh, $5 Super Chat says the Mammoth Revival Initiative is supposedly meant to restore the Siberian tundra and grasslands. Supposedly. They're trying to bring back the mammoths. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's they can a... restore the tundra. That's the reason. I don't know. <laughs> and and charge a ridiculous amount of money for people to go there, like in, <laughs> like in Jurassic Park. William Abbott Park. Photo bird. Okay. And then Quang Su for five bucks. Thank you, Quang Su. Says even if you had a benevolent arbiter of truth, they would still end up suppressing truth because they would eventually be wrong about something. That's why we need open dialogue because yeah. exactly this point, you know, scientists can be wrong and we need other scientists to review that and have that open discussion, but that's not being allowed by yeah. certain things. Yeah. Thank you guys for the super chats. I did not mention at the top of the show, but if you want to help uh, fund the show so that one day I can afford to steal Mystery Chris away from his day job, you can do that at <laughs> Subscribestar or Locals or Patreon. Or here on YouTube, you can give super chats, but they take a big chunk of it. But we appreciate them, and they're fun to read. So thank you. Um, so what are these fun clips we're going to play? All right. To, uh, the first one, uh, Jurassic Kitty. So this is a this one's been viewed almost 30 million times. So I'm sure a lot of people have already seen it. But in case you haven't, I think you might enjoy it. Jurassic Kitty should be the first the link I it's in the email. Okay. I'm just waiting for the ad to finish. There uh, we go. Stupid ad. I can tell you right now, I have not seen this. So Okay, cool. This is going to be fun.
I mean, this video and the other video we're going to play are just proof of why the internet still is great. Even though there's a lot of terrible things, there's still a lot the of awesome internet, things. It's still good. This is what the internet's for. Keep absolutely still. Suspicion's based on movement. <laughs> <laughs> so well done. Yeah, that's beautiful. Oh, that was great. Thank you. And then one line. This one I think you'll like a lot. Okay. Oh. The very last one. What? Yeah, I can tell you. <laughs> oh. What? Okay. This is exciting. I don't think I've seen this. Uh, and then I'm going to try to find one to show you, but I'm not, no guarantee okay. you can find it. I can barely remember what I'm looking for. <laughs> okay. This one's called Pee Wee at the Park. I own an island off the coast of Costa Rica. And I've spent the last five years setting up a kind of biological preserve. And there's no doubt our attractions will drive kids out of their minds. What park is this? Well, we've made living biological attractions so astounding that they'll capture the imagination of the entire planet. <laughs> <laughs> Thrown back into the mix together. We have the slightest idea what to expect. <laughs> yeah, that's nice. Gotta go. <laughs> <laughs> the fatty systems are shutting down. The door locks. Ellie, boot up the door locks. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing that matters now are the people you love. <laughs> Jump in there out there when people are dying. Go ahead and scream your head up. We're miles from where anyone can hear you. <laughs> <laughs> 
just a delay. That's all it is. All major theme parks have delays. <laughs> <laughs> but John, the Pirates of the Caribbean breaks down. The pirates don't eat the torch. <laughs> Clever girl. <laughs> That was excellent. Uh, I you. know every scene that's from through, like each one they cut out. I know. Uh, oh, I love both yeah. of those movies. And I know you love that Pee-wee's. Was, Big I love Pee-wee so much. And I know a lot of the those lines too, because I've seen the movie so many times. I'll tell you something funny that happened today. Mm. My husband gave, gave me a flower. It was a beautiful romantic moment. He gave me, he, he, he was out doing work and he found this, um, artificial flower anyway gave me this flower and he said very seriously he said you know i'll always be with you no he said i'm always he said i'm always with you and i said oh i know you are but what am i <laughs> <laughs> i couldn't help it i couldn't did help he it he did, like, laugh. He did laugh okay. i couldn't i could because I, as soon as i said i know you are i was like I had to say, but what am I? <laughs> I couldn't. I, I used, when I was a kid and my parents had people over, I used to go, I go, look what I can do. And I start going, and I do the dance. And I was yes. like, look at me. I still do that as an adult. I need love. <laughs> oh, I love Pee Wee so much. Okay. I know we're running a little over two hours, but let me see. I think I found the one I wanted to show you. And this is such a vague memory in my mind. This is from over 10 years ago. So it may not be as funny as I remember. I'm just giving you a warning. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> be funny at all. But, no. uh, but I do know that 10 years ago, this made me laugh so hard I cried. Um, okay. I'm just waiting for the ad to finish. Okay. <clears throat> This was a viral video 10 years ago. Look, 18 million views. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. There we go. It'd almost be like I'm watching this for the first time because I barely remember it. Can you see that? Not yet. There we go. It's always a little okay. slow. To Jurassic Park. <laughs> is it just me Does... <laughs> so... I'm about to cry now <laughs> oh, it's just so stupid <laughs> I love that it doesn't go anywhere it does nothing happens <laughs> Ten years 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> um, that's, that's the key to unlocking my sense of humor. <laughs> we stuck in my head all night. <laughs> so bad. <laughs> Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. Yes, people said. People said, put this in the uh, in the comments. Yes, we'll post. We'll post these videos. I promise tonight. I won't forget. I will do that. We'll post a link to the, these three funny videos. Okay, you guys. Thanks for hanging out and having laughs with us <laughs> and talking about Jurassic Park and also learning something pretty cool about Michael Crichton. At least I learned it. I didn't know this ahead of time. So, there uh, we go. Um... I want to ask you and everyone in the chat: Is are you going to go see Jurassic World Dominion? I'm probably not. No, but I am going to see. I haven't been to the movie theater in so long, and I heard that Top Gun was good. Yeah, I haven't seen that yet, but I haven't heard a bad thing about it. So, yeah. Okay. Why don't you come with us? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, that'll be fun. I haven't been in a long time. Let's go to one of the ones where you can eat food. Yeah, do that. Okay, cool. You guys. This is a fun one. I, maybe we should just end every episode with that Melodia clip. <laughs> <laughs> sure, people will love that. Yeah. <laughs> just me. It's just for me. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, like Netflix, I haven't seen a yet uh, for people going to see Jurassic World Dominion. So, yeah. So, I think we, uh, I don't think I it's going to do as well as yeah. a lot of people think. They're not going to be worried about kids going to see it like they were in 93. I'll tell you that. Nobody's going to care. Gonna... <laughs> yeah. I'm sure they'll do a big, but it'll probably have a big drop off second week. So I don't think reviews have been too good. Um, okay. Let's close it out with the video. With the, <laughs> the end credit video. Actually, first, I'll just remind people tomorrow, deprogrammed, the deprogrammed interview is going to be at a different time. It's going to be at three o'clock Texas. So one o'clock Pacific and four o'clock Eastern. If you want to watch it live, we're doing it live. We're doing it. Just do it live. We're doing it live <laughs> with um, Alex Stein 99. who's the funniest guy you'll ever see at a city council meeting. And so please come join us for that live interview. And then on Friday, there will be no live coffee break on Friday because I'm going to be speaking at the Austin public library uh, later that day. And we have stuff we're doing ahead of that, that panel. So I'm not doing a show that day, but um, if you're in Austin, if you're in Texas, come and see us. It's going to be a discussion about women leading the left. And we, we haven't all ended up in the same place. I think that's what's going to make it interesting. So it's me and Megan Murphy and um, Mary Lou Singleton and Michelle Evans. So I hope if you're in Austin, you come and I know we're going to hang out after too. So see you guys there. Goodbye, Mr. Chris. Bye, Carrie. Bye, chat. Bye, chat.